Welcome to Langstaff Online. My name is Michael De Silva, and I am your host for episode 68. In this episode, we are going to be listening to Joel Griffin on a message entitled, A Miracle Story. This message is based on 2 Kings chapter 4. I'd like to look at a miracle story, and let us read together in 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4, a miracle story. In this section of the book of 2 Kings, there's a recounting of several miracles during the ministry of the prophet Elisha. It's very interesting that the prophet Elisha comes after Elijah. I always remember that because S comes after J in the alphabet. And until I remembered that, I always got them mixed up. But Elisha was the one who washed the hands of Elijah. That meant he served him. He was mentored by Elijah. And when Elijah was going to be taken, miraculously, in a whirlwind to heaven, Elisha, he had one request to Elijah, that the spirit that's on you, may I have a double portion of that. It's very interesting as you read through the recounting of the miracles that were done during the ministry of Elisha, there's, there's double the number of miracles during the ministry of Elisha in comparison to the ministry of Elijah. And here's a man of God, and there's a miracle wrought in the everyday life of a widow who was in great need of assistance. Let's turn our eyes to the reading of the chapter, not the whole chapter, just the first section. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse number 1. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha. Now that expression, sons of the prophets, that means, that that uses the word son, uh, not so much as, as the offspring of, but a member of a class. Okay, this is something that's done in the Bible various times. If you're the son of something, you're the member of that class. In Ephesians chapter 2, we were the sons of disobedience. We weren't the offspring of disobedience, but we were the member of the class characterized by disobedience. And the Lord had this nickname for two of the disciples, the sons of thunder, James and John. They were characterized, they were members of this class, they were characterized by being thunderous, whatever that meant. So here is a son of the prophets. He, he was a member of the prophetic class. He was a disciple of Elisha, because there was literally this this guild of prophets or a school of prophets. And Elisha was the leader. And this story is about specifically his wife. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go outside. Borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons 
And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There's not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Miracles. A miracle, as defined by the Bible Sense lexicon, is a marvelous event manifesting a supernatural act of a divine agent, often with an emphasis on communicating a message. And so in the Bible, we encounter miracles in which the laws of nature, it just seems like they don't apply. God works, he's creator, and he can do something like make iron float. And that happens later on in the same book. And through the divine agent, the man Elisha, God does a miracle where iron floats and a man gets his axe head back. And there's miracles like that in the Bible. Like when people are brought from death back to life. This is what God does. He can do this. And when a boy's lunch is multiplied to feed 5,000 people at a single sitting. This is amazing. These are miracles. But then there's also miracles in the Bible where it's not so much that the laws of, of nature seem like they don't apply and God does something above and beyond them, but that something just so amazing is done, even within the normal laws of nature, like Peter goes and he casts a hook in and he pulls out a fish. But God has orchestrated that the fish to be caught is one with a, fish, with a coin in its mouth. That's amazing too, isn't it? And we know that's a miracle as well even though it involves something normal like fishing. Or like casting a net on a particular side of the boat after a dearth of fishing. And there's so many fish. This is a miracle. It's an act of God. And we recognize it and we give him the glory. But it's in an everyday event like fishing. Now, it's interesting, as you go through the Bible, there's periods when there's manifestations and miracles above and beyond the normal. One example of that is in the life of Moses, of course. Another is in Elijah and Elisha's ministry. Another is in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And also during the foundation period of the church, when the apostles were operating. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, it says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And so we see that the Bible is, is telling us that it was, this was a confirmation of God upon the apostolic ministry, that it was normal that they would be working mighty signs and wonders. And Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 has the same teaching. But it's not the norm today that God does miracles through someone like an apostle. The apostle was someone who had physically seen the Lord Jesus Christ and witnessed his ministry, the, the Apostle Paul was one born out of due time. He was a bit like an exception, and he explains that. But aren't we glad that even though God is not normally performing miracles through agents like men of God today of this type, aren't we glad that God himself still loves to intervene in our lives? Mm -hmm. And the longer that we walk with God, the more we can testify personally to the times when God has answered prayer through miracles. 
God is still doing miracles. In a sense, we have something even better. We don't have to try and find an apostle for a miracle. We pray to God directly through the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit who is living and active, working in us and around us. He is doing miracles today. He's answering prayer and God gets all of the glory. Wonderful. Are we looking for God to do that? Are we ready for it? The setting was dark. It's a divided kingdom. Long past are the glory days of David and Solomon. The kings are poor leaders. And they, led, they have led the people far, far from God. Far from what they should be worshipping. They're bowing and kissing Baal instead of declaring the greatness of Jehovah. And yet God still has his people in that very, very dark setting where there's departure from the worship of God. There's departure from social justice that God had built into the law. And the poor are getting poorer. And the rich are getting richer. And the land is in the hands of the few. And you you see that even in Ahab's reign. You know how he goes in and he takes Naboth's inheritance. Because Naboth wouldn't sell it. He's a righteous man. And there's this injustice. And it's dark. And during this time, we know that there were still some that were following the Lord. But they were dark, dark days. This is the setting. It's prior to the Assyrian siege and when the Assyrians came in in the year 722 and took, demolished the northern kingdom until it was just not even visible anymore. It's before that. And uh, Elisha's ministry is 847 to 798 BC. And so this is, this is the setting for this miracle story. Let's just notice a few things here. First of all, a woman in crisis. Second, God's servant for the hour. Third, God's abundant provision. And number four, a man greater than Elisha. So four things. Let's go through those four things together and and to really delve into the word of God here. A woman in crisis. A good man dies. Her husband. He was a good man. He feared the Lord. And now he's gone. He dies. And sometimes life is like that, isn't it? It's just so, it can be so hard. Because the good are dying. And the evil, it seems like they're just flourishing. And this is what the psalmist talked about at times. The first physical death was Abel, the righteous brother, the good brother, dies. It's so hard. This woman is dealing with the the searing pain of having lost her life partner, and he was a good man. Very, very difficult. How do you cope with such loss? Some of you know you've experienced it. And Psalm 116, verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. I I never understood that verse until I understood it like this. Precious meaning notable for such high cost. It's not that God has some sort of delight in seeing the pain of death. The Lord wept. At the effects of death. 
But God takes great note of it. It's such a costly thing. Infinite. The Lord takes great notice of your pain. Dear sister, dear brother, as you seek to carry on in crisis, I pray that this passage today would give you comfort if that is the place where you are today. Joe Biden, who's now running for president, it's very interesting, he won a seat in the U.S. Senate in 1972, before I was born, long before I was born. He was 29 years old. His life was, seemed like it was perfect. Married, three children, seat in the Senate, one of the youngest to ever win a seat in the U.S. Senate, 29 years old. And he goes, he's off working. I assume he's in the Capitol. And then he receives news. There's a phone call. And his wife and his three children, they went and bought a Christmas tree. And they stuffed it into the car and they were driving home. And a transport truck T-boned the car. And his wife and his youngest child, their daughter, died instantly. And there were vote Joe Biden for Senate pamphlets that had flown out of the car that were mashed up against the grill of the, of the transport truck. And the absolute celebration of their life is absolutely devastated like that. To the man's credit, he's carried on in life. Such searing loss. How do you carry on? What comfort is there? The Bible offers us this comfort that God himself knows what that pain is. And that God himself, he comes in the Lord Jesus Christ. He experiences death. The Lord Jesus Christ experiences the searing pain of separation from loved one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the, the hope of the word of God is that the Lord Jesus, in going into that and then beating the enemy of death, now offers life, eternal life, to those who will trust him. And so there's this hope. We don't, we don't suffer as those who don't have hope. But the Bible is acknowledges the pain that you feel when you have lost your loved one. The Lord Jesus offers us victory. So here is a woman, and it is a hard, hard time. And it seems like all she has left are her two children and a little jar of oil. A little jar of oil. A flask of oil. And then it gets worse, because not only does a good man die, but a heartless man is coming. A heartless man is coming. The creditor, the creditor, the one to whom that family owed money is coming to exploit her weakness in the wake of her husband, her mainstay's life, her mainstay's death. It would seem that there's no property to be sold to liquidate and pay off the debt. It would seem that there's no kinsman redeemer to step in like in the situation of Ruth and Naomi. There's no Boaz stepping forward and the creditor is coming, and it's a good man has died, a heartless man is coming, and the widow, it just seems like there's no hope. It's only getting darker from here. She is desperate. 
She's desperate. There's a lot of social injustice going on here because the law had made it very clear that Israelite people were not allowed to come and enslave other Israelites. This man is coming. She says, she cries out of desperation to Elisha. Do you notice that language? Cried to Elisha. Cried to him. And then at the end of of her cry, the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Now that was illegal. They weren't allowed to enslave fellow Israelites. They weren't supposed to do that. And the language that's used here is very clear. If you... Um, if you want to do the background reading on it, Leviticus 25, 39 to 42, it shows that they were allowed to take, in order to have a debt paid, someone could enter in and be a, a hired worker until that debt was liquidated within the bounds of that 50-year period, until Jubilee. At Jubilee, everybody was free of debt. But within that period of time, someone could work off a debt. If they didn't have the money, they could work but they were a hired worker. And that's a different Hebrew word than the slave word that's used here. He's coming to make them slaves. They're not going to pay off the debt and then go. He's going to take them and enslave them. Desperate situation. You know, eventually, God points out in the word of God why the captivity came, why the northern kingdom fell, and then the southern kingdom fell. It had to do with not observing Sabbaths. And that was all around the whole idea of social justice. Because built into the Sabbath was not just giving the land agricultural rest, but was also people going free from their debt obligations and land going back to the appropriate families. This was all getting turned, subverted and turned up on its head. And eventually God steps in and says, okay, you've gone so far from me. You don't worship me. You're not following the social etiquette and laws that I've set forth, this is coming to an end. And the, the Babylonian captivity came and the Assyrian captivity. And it's, you can see how it wreaked havoc on people's lives. And maybe you're in a situation, you're in a double whammy situation like that. I don't know. Maybe you feel like you are in a double whammy of injustice, of the pain of loss in life. Maybe it is helpful for you to to be reminded today that God understands not only the pain of death, but also the pain of inequity and injustice. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And that was when the Lord Jesus was standing in front of an unjust judge, Pilate and Caiaphas. And as they slur him, and they are so unjust, and they are so crooked and perverted, and they do not do justice, the Lord Jesus, he silently, he takes the, takes the blows, he takes the insults, he takes the threats, the reviling. He says, Father, I commit myself to you. You know what is right and wrong. You know I'm innocent. You know why I'm here. Your father understands your situation. The Lord Jesus has been where you are. A good man dies and an evil man comes in a desperate cry for help. This woman cries out for help. She's desperate. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him 
and saved him out of all his troubles, said David in Psalm 34. Psalm 116, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. She's crying out for help so that she can have that same testimony. It's a cry of appeal. It's out of a sense of desperation. Oftentimes we wait until the situation is utterly desperate, don't we? (laughs) Before we cry to the Lord. Can we do that? Can you have the faith to do that? That God could intervene? He has the capability to intervene? Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. She came to the point where she couldn't go on without crying out. It was her, she's desperate. Have you been there? Just desperate? Lord, I need you. I can't go on without you. I think that's really the experience of Jacob. He's wrestling with, with the angel of the Lord by the brook. I won't let you go until you bless me. He has God in the corner? Really? No. Of course not. That doesn't make sense. Immortal having God stuck in the corner? I'm not letting you go. He recognizes he cannot go another day in life without the blessing of God. Without God's hand with him and upon him. She cries. She cries out. But then there's a servant, God's servant, for the hour. Isn't it like God to have someone there? Isn't it like God to have someone in the wings to bring in? Like a Philip who's commissioned to go off and find the eunuch. Like Peter who's commissioned to go off and find Cornelius. These people who are searching. God has someone. He brings them in. That's that's how the Lord works. And she cries out in desperation. And then there is a man. There is a servant for the hour. Let us be men and women of availability like that. We are present. We are attentive. And we are commissioned by God. To help the people who are in this searing need. Like the men of Issachar who understand the times. In 1 Chronicles 12. And they knew what Israel ought to do. Like Esther. Who was brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. Can we be people like that? Like an Elisha who's there for a widow who's in desperation. Like Peter. Like Philip. Can we be God's servant for the hour? That's a calling that God has on our lives. And how many times do we miss the pleasure of being God's agent because we weren't attentive? We were occupied with something of so much lesser value. It's so interesting how he's available and he's also willing to help. What shall I do for you is his answer. What shall I do for you? I'm not sure how to take this phrase, perhaps one of two ways. What shall I do for you? Meaning like, I don't have any money. I can't pay off your debt. What shall I do for you? Or in the more, perhaps in the more kind and tender, tender sense, What can I do to help you out? Whichever way, it's one of the two, I believe. He's available, and he's there. And this man understands how God is likely to work. Isn't that interesting? Elisha is in tune with how God, as he gets to know God, and as he's a man of God, he is in tune with how God is likely to respond in this situation. And he gives wise counsel And God, in his power, 
delights to enter in and to work a miracle in this situation. George Mueller was on a ship traveling to Quebec. In the latter years of George Mueller's life, after the amazing, amazing years of running the orphanages in Bristol by faith, George Mueller had an extensive, extensive itinerant preaching throughout the world. One time he's coming into Quebec on ship, and he has a preaching engagement scheduled. And the ship can't come into port because there's thick fog, and they just simply cannot enter port safely because of the dense fog. And George Mueller, they wait for days, and the fog's not lifting, and he says to the captain, I have never been late for a speaking engagement, and I don't plan to start now. Let's go and pray about this. And the captain laughs at him. What, you're going to pray for the fog to lift? George Mueller insists. So they go down privately to the captain's quarters, and George Mueller prays to God that he would lift the fog so that they could enter port. And the captain, he begins to pray after George concludes, and George stops him and says, please don't pray. For two reasons. First of all, you don't believe that God will lift the fog. And number two, the fog has already lifted. And they go up on deck, and the sun is blazing. The fog is gone, and they go into port. George Mueller had a special gift of faith, but as he grew in his life, he became acquainted with how God works and why God works and why he does amazing things for his honor and glory. And I believe that can be the same for you. That can be the same for me. As we get to know God, we learn to pray in his will and learn to seek his glory and to ask him to do what he is capable of doing. It is God's good pleasure to do it for his own honor and glory and our blessing. Elisha has an understanding of how God works. And so he gives counsel to this woman. Get as many vessels as you can get. Borrow them from wherever you can find them. It's very interesting that if you look at uh, the Hebrew words in the dictionary for the little jar of oil and then the vessels. The little jar of oil, it's a flask. And um, it's normally for holding liquids. But the containers that he, the vessels that Elijah says go and get, it is a word that's used for any household implement. It's as if Elijah is saying, go out and find absolutely anything, as much as you can, that could possibly contain oil. The contrast between the two words is, is lovely. You can just imagine anything that's spherical or any sort of capacity to it. They're going and they're scouring everywhere. And that's exactly what they do. That's exactly what they do. And God loves to honor faith and obedience, doesn't he? This is where God starts in our lives. He starts at the place where we're at. And they did respond with faith and obedience. Faith is the trigger that unleashes God's power. This is what God has ordained. It's God's sovereign ordinance that faith unleashes power. And we can wait upon him to do what only he can do. Faith is the utter confidence that God can do it if it's his will. And the expectant looking to God for his response in total dependence on him. That's faith. God loves to see that in you. 
In Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 to 18, you have the words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the king right before they're thrown in fire, right before they're thrown in the furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Hear that? But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Hear the language of their faith? Our God is able. Our God will save us. But if he chooses not to, that's fine. This is the language of of faith. There there is twisted doctrine where where people are forcing, trying to force God's hand with the amount of faith they have. And if something doesn't happen, they say, well, we didn't have enough faith. Because if we had enough faith, then God would definitely act. But that's an imbalance. The beautiful balance is here, I believe. In the words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, our God is able, and he's going to save us when you throw us in that fire. But if he doesn't, that's okay. This is faith. And these, this family, they scramble to find anything that might Hold the oil. And just imagine that little hut, that little house, and it's just full. God loves to honor faith in a community, too. It's not just the widow's faith, but it's also her son's faith who are scurrying around the neighborhood, getting everything they can to hold oil. And the neighbors who are contributing to the cause with anything that holds oil in their house. God loves to honor faith in a community. Do we expect God to fill this place? Do we expect God to just pour out his blessing? Are we, are we asking him to do that? <clears throat> Lord, you're able. Lord, you will. But if not, okay. But we're waiting, Lord. We're ready. Ephesians 3 Verses 20 and 21 say, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church. To him be glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The blessing of the Lord on that day, it matched their expectancy to receive it. Did you notice how she's pouring and she says, Okay, bring another vessel. And the son says, there's no more. And then the oil stops, just like that. So the Lord's blessing met their capacity and their expectancy. That's, I believe that's an important lesson from the story. The Lord himself said, don't throw pearl before swine. God doesn't either. He's looking. He's looking for the expectation of his glorious manifestation in us. And so the vessels are full and then the oil stops. But the other flip side of it is this, that his capacity to bless was infinite. His capacity to bless was infinite. It kept going right up until the vessels were all full. And it could have kept going, hypothetically, if there were more vessels. This is God's power. Do we believe, the brothers and sisters, that God's capacity to bless is infinite? Do we believe that? Who is able to do far more abundantly above, not just the number of vessels we have, but even the number of vessels that we could think of possibly having 
That's what it says. Who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. According to the power at work within us. What did it say? At work in heaven? At work within us. This power is already at work in you. Already at work in me. God loves to answer the desperate cry. Let's just finish by, by thinking about a man greater than Elisha. We have one so much greater than this man of God in 2 Kings 4. So much greater than Elisha. We have the Lord Jesus. Elisha is at best just a picture of the power of the Lord Jesus. Elisha was serving God. The Lord Jesus is God. Elisha parted the Jordan River. The Lord Jesus walked on water, commanded the winds and the waves to stop. Elisha makes the Jericho spring potable water. The Lord Jesus turned water to wine and offered the water of life to everyone who would take it, in which they would never thirst again. Elisha multiplies the widow's oil. The Lord feeds 5,000 from a boy's lunch and says, I am the bread of life. Elisha resurrects the Shunammite's son, and the Lord Jesus raises Lazarus and says, I am the resurrection and the life. Elisha heals Naaman's leprosy, and the Lord touches the lepers and heals them. But he is able to heal from the infection of sin. Elisha blinds the Syrian army, and the Lord Jesus, he heals the man born blind and ultimately lifts us out of spiritual blindness, and he says, I am the light of the world. What a beautiful picture of salvation in Christ we have here as well. Not just a lesson for our faith, but a beautiful picture of salvation. We have death, we have indebtedness, we have oppression, we have a creditor coming, we have darkness. But then we have a miracle. We have a debt paid. And then it all ends with this phrase, your sons can live on the rest. Not just a debt paid, but a fullness of life, free from debt obligation. This is what we have, brothers and sisters in Christ. We are free from debt obligation, but not just that, not just our sins paid, but full eternal life. We can live on the rest. We have eternal life now, present possession. And for all eternity, the quality of life. It was the oil. Oil was the commodity in the story. Oil was valuable. They cooked with it. They made light with it. It was medicinal. They anointed people with it. It was a valuable commodity. But we have not been freed from debt with some commodity like oil. But the very blood of the one greater than Elisha, the Lord Jesus. How do you put some sort of a price per volume on blood? How can you possibly put a dollar amount on someone's life. We are not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Infinite value. All that we have in the Lord Jesus. It's amazing. So may our hearts be built up, may our faith be strengthened, and may we get our eyes on the one greater than Elisha, the Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you 
that you care for those who are oppressed. We thank you that you hear the cry of desperation. We thank you that you are pleased to use us as agents. We thank you, Lord, that you are so thrilled with responses of faith in the community of your people and that you are pleased to pour out blessing upon those who expect it. Oh God, may we be those people scurrying to find anything that would hold your blessing for its coming. Oh God, bless us as individuals, as a church, for the honor of the one who is so far greater than Elisha, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you and we pray in his powerful name. Amen.